Coming up on Tech Nation, are the people building our technologies even thinking about how they may or may not be ethical? Got news? They're now beginning to teach how to do it. University of Pennsylvania professors Michael Kearns and Aaron Roth are here with The Ethical Algorithm, the science of socially aware algorithm design. Then Tech Nation regular contributor Gary Davis fills us in on the state of corporate security breaches. And Tech Nation Health chief correspondent Dr. Daniel Kraft talks about IPS cells, our own cells that may soon treat our bodies. All this and more coming up on this week's Tech Nation. Let's take five with Moira Gunn. This is Five Minutes. In 2015, I was able to speak with Dr. David Linden, a professor of neuroscience at Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine and author of Touch, the Science of Hand, Heart, and Mind. I asked him, what happens when your skin is touched? We think of touch as a single sense, but actually there are many, many different sensors in our skin acting in parallel. There are nerve endings that transduce heat and cold and itch and pain and pressure and vibration and all those different... We're just si- sensors. Sensors everywhere. Sensors everywhere. When you think of it, it's, it's a very large array of sensors. If we took your skin off, it would be the weight of a bowling ball and it would be the size of nine large pizza boxes. So it's the biggest sensory array we have in the body. And it has all these different sensors, but these sensors are combined in a stream of information that goes to the brain. And so we don't experience all these different touch modalities as, as separate signals. They're, they're blended together in our consciousness. You say there's emotional touch and sensory touch. Yes, that's true. Uh, for every kind of touch, whether it is a caress or feeling in your pocket for a quarter, or or pain, or a sexual touch. There are separate pathways and separate brain regions for the emotional aspect and what we call the discriminative aspect. So let me give you an example. If I were to uh, hit you on the thumb with a hammer, uh, the facts of that, which would get to your brain very quickly to an area called the somatosensory cortex, would all be about where on your body were you hit? What's the quality of the pain? Stabbing, burning, etc. And how intense is it? And then there would be another aspect to it, which is this is highly emotionally negative. Uh, this, and we think of, of pain as being intrinsically emotionally negative, but this is just a trick our brain plays on us. So if you have damage to the emotional touch center of your brain, and I hit you on the thumb with a hammer, instead of going, yeah, oh, that hurts, that's terrible, the way a normal person would, you would say in a very flat voice, yes, that hurts a lot. It's it's not like being a masochist, right? Masochists have a big emotional response to pain. It just happens to be positive. So hit me again. Exactly. Pain asymbolics, which are the people who have this damage, have no emotional response to pain. And we only have to look to our everyday language to see this reinforced. So 
uh, we might say, I was touched by that gesture. You hurt my feelings. Uh, and the idea of touched meaning emotionally affected or my feelings to mean my tender emotions, you might think, well, that's just not something deeply biological. That's just a trick of modern day English. But it isn't. It's actually broadly cross-cultural if you look in different languages. So let's get to itch. Itch and scratch. So itch, there's been a big debate about itch, right? Some people have said, Itch is a special, unique sensation that must have its very own kind of nerve ending in the skin because it's very unique. It always provokes scratching. Pain doesn't provoke scratching. Itch does. And other people said, no, itch is just a touch blend. In other words, it's a little bit of pain and a little bit of light touch, and you combine those together and it feels like itch, but there's not a dedicated sensor for itch. And this argument raged and raged, and now we know that there is at least one molecularly distinct, uh, unique sensor for itch, that it's not merely a blend. And the exciting thing about that is that means that we will now be able to develop anti-itch medicines that are way better than what we have right now. As you know, if you go get poison oak or poison ivy and you try to get one of those creams to relieve the itch, even a prescription cream, it's not very effective. This Technation interview discusses Johns Hopkins School of Medicine professor David Linden's 2015 book, Touch, The Science of Hand, Heart, and Mind. He's hard at work on a new book, due out in fall of 2020, Unique, The New Science of Human Individuality. I'm Moira Gunn. This is 5 Minutes. Five Minutes is produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Five Minutes is a production of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt. From San Francisco, I'm Moira Gunn, and this is Tech Nation. Today on Tech Nation, Building Ethical Technology. I'm joined by Michael Kearns and Aaron Roth, computer and information science professors at the University of Pennsylvania. Their book is The Ethical Algorithm, Science of Socially Aware Algorithm Design. Then what's the state of corporate security breaches? Is our data any safer? Tech Nation regular contributor Gary Davis fills us in. And Tech Nation Health chief correspondent Dr. Daniel Kraft simply explains how our cells may soon be used to treat our bodies. Those would be iPS cells, induced pluripotent stem cells. And now, Michael Kearns and Aaron Roth. Michael and Aaron, welcome to Tech Nation. Thanks for having us. Yes, thank you. I got to admit up front, two of my degrees are in computer science. And in all the years of studying that topic, it was all about how do you program? How do you design? How do you architect? How do you interface? But no one ever mentioned ethics. You guys are talking about ethics. Yeah, I think that's a function of the fact that um, certainly when I was an undergraduate studying computer science, uh, you know, algorithms and the like didn't operate on individual citizens the way they do today. So even though, 
fields like AI and machine learning have been around for a long time. In the old days, you would build predictive models for things like the weather or for systems like the stock market or engineering or scientific applications. Um, and so not that there weren't ethical concerns with those kinds of applications, but it's a very different story when you're building models which are making decisions about what criminal sentences people receive, whether they get into colleges of their choice, whether they get a loan or the like. And so now that algorithms are being used to make important decisions about individual citizens, all of these ethical concerns come to the fore. And we should probably say that in the old days we were literally coding the computer, and now what we're doing is basically what we're talking about here, at least, is specifying models that are making decisions about our lives. Yeah, and that's one of the things that makes the study of this issue so interesting and so complicated. Because exactly as you say, there's no human being behind the curtain coding what the algorithm should do in every particular circumstance. Instead, people just specify some narrow proxy for accuracy or for profit and tell the computer to search through some enormous space of models to optimize that objective. And the result is that it's very hard to anticipate what the model that you get back is going to do, except that it will be exceptionally good as measured according to your proxy objective function. But the kinds of misbehaviors we're increasingly seeing from algorithms are the unanticipated side effect of this procedure. Well, I have to say, I'm sure that there's someone specifying in there. If it's Moira Gunn, say no. <laughs> Does he get that specific? Or are we talking more like if it's someone with a radio show that's of a certain age group uh, and uh, lives in a certain place? Well, then we're going to say no. Yeah, you, you put it in an interesting way because I think the truth is somewhere in between. In the old days when, you know, I mean, even back in the 70s, people started to use technologies like neural networks for credit scoring and things like that. But there was a limit to how much you could know about an applicant beyond other than what, other than what they put on their application itself. These days, it's possible to, you know, marry your loan application, for instance, with all kinds of other public and private sources of data about you, like your social media behavior and the like. And so when machine learning and AI are used to build models from these very, very rich spaces of features and data, there won't literally be a line that says, you know, if, more, no, but there might be, you know, rules learned that are extremely detailed that say, if a particular applicant has these specific combinations of attributes, then that's a positive or negative indicator for their credit score. And so it's not a level of specific individuals, but can almost feel that way because of the specificity of the models. Well, when does it go from just plain, well, we're going to be specific because we want to be profitable, to downright unethical? So there's a bunch of ways you can potentially be unethical, and we talk about all of them. But just to use the lending example, when you think about lending, you have to think about, okay, who are the people who are harmed by the mistakes that the algorithm is going to inevitably make. Because none of these algorithms are perfect. They make mistakes when they predict, for example, who's going to pay back a loan. And in this case, we might think that the people who are harmed are the people who really are creditworthy, who really would have gone off and done something great with the loan if we had given it to them and paid us back. But we, we didn't give them the loan because our algorithm made the wrong prediction. Now, one of the things that can happen is that 
when you tell your machine learning algorithm to blindly optimize accuracy, these mistakes, these harmful mistakes, don't have to be uniformly spread throughout the population. You might find, for example, that the rates at which you are incorrectly denying people loans is higher in one population than in another. And this is the kind of thing that's been documented time and time again between racial groups, for example. Now, this is in the area of machine learning. The machine is learning with big data and models. What is what is the prospective outcome? And that outcome is of interest to the people asking the questions. What's the difference between artificial intelligence and machine learning? They seem to go together as a pair. Yeah, um, you hit on an interesting point. There is widespread disagreement and controversy about that question, even within the research communities themselves. I think it's fair to say that machine learning, certainly historically, is um, a subtopic of artificial intelligence, right? So artificial intelligence generally strives to study the possibilities for computers replicating human or bio, you know, intelligence and in other biological species. And so there's a lot of things that humans do well that don't necessarily involve a lot of learning. So, you know, just locomotion, for example, um, a lot of your visual system is, um, you know, hardwired from birth or close to birth. Uh, so, you know, you're not getting better as you get older at detecting motion, for instance, in your visual field. You're probably actually getting worse at some point. Uh, and so those are also important topics within uh, artificial intelligence. I think what's what's really changed in the past 20 years or so, is that many aspects of AI that seemed to be quite separate from learning turn out to be best approached in the modern era using machine learning. And, and this is partly due to scientific advances, and it's partly due to just engineering and technology advances. So, for instance, some of your listeners may have heard of deep learning, which is you know, kind of the modern incarnation of, of neural networks. And the ideas for deep learning, I think it's fair to say, were more or less in place a couple of decades ago, but we just didn't have computers powerful enough or data sets large enough to train the models, um, you know, the, the way we can today. And that's revolutionized many, many parts of AI. You're listening to Tech Nation. I'm Moira Gunn, and my guests today are Michael Kearns and Aaron Roth. Professor Kearns is the National Center Chair in the Computer and Information Science Department of the University of Pennsylvania, with secondary appointments in economics and the Wharton School. He's worked extensively in many areas and most germane in algorithms, data, and machine learning. Aaron Roth is an associate professor in the Computer and Information Science Department, also at Penn. And he's been recognized with a number of awards, including a Presidential Early Career Award for Scientists and Engineers in 2016. They're here today with the Ethical Algorithm, the Science of Socially Aware Algorithm Design. A lot of people out there are saying... What is it with all this social media? What is it with all my, I walk around with my phone and everybody knows where I am. What about all that data? And what are companies like Facebook and Twitter and the like doing with all that information? Now, you may have to parse that down, but I think that's, that describes the general feeling that the everyday person has. Uh, so you're right that one thing that's 
changed maybe in the last decade is the amount of digital exhaust that you just generate as you use the internet. So everything you do when you click a link on Facebook, when you when you like something, it's generating data about you that is saved and is used by machine learning algorithms to, um, for these companies, essentially try to maximize the amount of money that they can get out of you by showing you ads. Yeah, just let me add to that that this digital exhaust, as Aaron puts it, is a goldmine for machine learning uh, in sometimes surprising ways because one of the, I think, discoveries of the consumer internet era is that lots of data that we generate that we think is innocuous or not especially private or sensitive uh, actually correlates very strongly with other things about ourselves that we might think of as sensitive or private. Uh, to give a concrete example, a number of years ago, there was a, a study showing that just from your like behavior on Facebook, just from the pieces of content that you click the thumbs up button on and nothing else, nothing about you, nothing about your friends on Facebook, just from that like behavior, it was possible to statistical accuracy to predict surprising things like your sexual orientation, your drug and alcohol use, whether you are the child of divorced parents. So... These days, a lot of times, data sets that we don't think are especially private um, are actually incredibly valuable for making predictions and actionable predictions about us on the Internet or in other domains. Now, you talk about developing ethical algorithms in terms of FATE, F-A-T-E, fairness, accountability, transparency, and the E is for ethics itself. That acronym has become popular in the community. And I think the E on the end there is sort of just tacked on so that the, so it doesn't just spell out fat. Not, not going to work. Does, Branding is not going to let that happen. Yeah, no. <laughs> yeah. But it does get to several of the key things that people worry about when, when you think about uh, using algorithms to make important decisions about people. So we already talked a little bit about fairness. You know, we don't want algorithms to disproportionately harm one group over another. Uh, but the A and the T in there, accountability and transparency, you know, when, when we've got human beings making decisions, um, usually you have some amount of recourse. You can ask, well, why did you make that decision? And, and you know, people are very good at giving you a plausible sounding post hoc explanations. If you if you think that something was done wrong, you know, you can you can try to complain, you can try to get it fixed. And one thing that makes people uncomfortable about about algorithms is that they seem at least to be these inscrutable black boxes. You know, if a if a neural network denies you for a loan, you might wanna ask, well why? Why did that happen? And it's not immediately clear what form that answer can take. Related to wanting an explanation for why decisions are made, in the same way that we you know, expect human decision makers to explain why they've made a decision, we also expect there to be accountability. So, for instance, if you're denied a loan by a human loan officer and you feel that that even after getting the explanation for that decision, that it was an unfair or unjust decision, you expect 
you know, the, the lending company to take some responsibility to investigate, for instance, and to own the decision, so to speak. And for the same reasons that Aaron mentioned that, for instance, when a complicated neural network has made the decision, often, of course, that neural network has acted entirely autonomously. And, and they're just not, may not be humans in the loop anymore that are overseeing individual decisions. And, uh, you know, one of the one of the great things, one of the blessings and curses of machine learning is the scale at which you can make decisions, right? It's the efficiency of being able to do things at a massive scale in an autonomous way. And, and so now a lot of companies, for instance, that have adopted machine learning to automate decision making, the, you know, they're making decisions now at a pace that outstrips humans' abilities to either explain them or address wrongs. And, you know, I think many people experience this when they try to get a person on a phone at a large company these days and, you know, an automated decision <laughs> has been made about you that you don't like, then you call up and you get some voice recognition system and it's impossible to get to a human. And from the corporate side, of course, the efficiencies are massive, but the whole topic of fate kind of asks, how does this play out in the algorithmic era? And our particular interest is not just in how does it play out, but how can you make it better? How can you um, not try to reverse automation and go back to a you know pre-technology era, which I think it's too late for that? Um, but how do you make algorithms better in the first place so that they don't make unfair decisions, that when they do make unfair decisions, they can be redressed, um, and that explanations are available as well. And Michael, when you say autonomous, you mean they don't want any humans in the process at all. They just want the computers to handle it. That's right. I mean, just think about, you know, to use a different example, um, advertising on Google, right? So you've typed in a search query, uh, Google knows the words that you've typed in. Maybe Google knows more about you from your prior searches or from your use of Gmail or other services. And in that instant, that fraction of a second that you've typed in that query, they have to decide what ads are relevant to the query that you've made and the person that they think that you are. And if a human being had to sit there and be able to vet each one of those advertising displays to you to decide whether they're really relevant or whether, in fact, they might be entirely inappropriate and offensive, then it obviates the whole point of using automation and machine learning in the first place, right? Because the whole idea is to be able to do this in a fraction of a second so you can serve in real time billions and billions of customers. And so this is what I mean by autonomy. Yeah, it's like algorithms and predictive models acting on their own without any without any immediate human oversight. The oversight is one step removed in the design of the algorithms, the choice of the data sets, the choice of the variables that the model uses to make the predictions. But, you know, come come the service itself, the thing is flying on autopilot. So part of this is being able to, our approach that we're talking about, is understanding when we really need to involve humans and where we need to involve humans. That's right. Yeah, I think what we want to do is we want to figure out first before we deploy the algorithm, what are the behaviors that we want and what are the behaviors that we actively want to avoid? And that's the place where human beings are, are going to be sort of uh, crucially important, making those decisions, deciding what exactly are the behaviors we don't want. But because there's not going to be time for human beings to, in essence, be looking over the shoulder of the algorithm as it's acting in real time, 
you know, we have to get it right when we when we specify what we don't want the algorithm to do, and we need to figure out how to embed these things as constraints directly into the algorithm. And we have to understand that we frequently can't tell what's going to be wrong until we fr- actually deploy it <laughs> and be ready to go in and fix it. We can't just say, deployed, on to my next problem. It's like we have to be able to go in and observe and measure. You know, we're technologists. We're technological optimists for the most part. And we think it is possible to design algorithms to be better in the first place. But I think one way of interpreting your question is that we all have to be responsible. We all have to be aware that we're going to not always get things right on the first try. And so this is why another thing that we strongly recommend is just as you said, the ability to measure things. So if we're concerned about unfairness, for instance, in predictive modeling, we need to have ways of quantitatively auditing our models and algorithms on an ongoing basis to make sure that they aren't exhibiting biases that we you know, knowingly don't want. And we have to measure that on an ongoing basis in a way that, that's quantitative and actionable. So that brings us to transparency. What is that? All of these things are quite related. Transparency refers to, if you like, you know, whitening the black box. So shedding light on, first of all, just the high-level pipeline of machine learning, which involves, you know, many, many steps. It's not just the algorithmic steps. It's collecting data in the first place. How is that data cleaned? Um, What variables are included or not included in the data? What type of learning algorithm it's fed to? So All of these are steps. Some of them are more scientific and engineering oriented, and some of them are more social. And so often when people talk about transparency in the acronym FATE, um, they really mean just shedding light on the entire end-to-end process, um, whether it's scientific pieces or social pieces or other components. Well, you fellas are university professors, and you're teaching students about how to do all this ethical algorithm building and how to build ethical models and ethical programs. I guess I'm interested in how you teach that. You can teach about it, but how do you get them to actually do one, do an example that shows how ethics is embedded in, in a program or a model? Yeah, so here at Penn, we actually just piloted an undergraduate course on this topic for the first time last year, and and this spring will be its second offering. Um, And and you're right, this is new territory, right? So the science that that we were teaching, uh, much of it is less than a few years old, and all of it's less than, say, 15 years old. And you know, it's maybe worth pointing out that um, at places like Penn and elsewhere, there have long been... Uh, ethics courses for engineers and scientists, but they were really non-technical courses. And, you know, I, I, perhaps I exaggerate or do them an injustice to say that they're mainly, you know, looking at case studies and trying to, you know, teach students how to be good people and to make the right decisions. But they're not teaching scientific content in the form of here's how you can engineer your systems and algorithms to be better behaved, not just you being a better person. And so a lot of what we teach in this course and is taught in similar courses that are also all relatively recent around the country is, you know, here's how you modify, for instance, the goal of a machine learning algorithm in a way 
that will incorporate this particular quantitative notion of fairness, or here's how you design a machine learning algorithm that's operating on sensitive medical data to still produce an accurate predictive model for a rare disease, which I think we all agree is a good thing, in a way that also provides guarantees to individuals uh, privacy of their medical records. And so there's quite a large science of, of, around this, and this is what we write about. And even though it's early days, I, we feel it's, you know, mature enough to start actually teaching at the undergraduate level. And so these courses, they still have a case study component to them. We still study where cases where, you know, algos have gone wrong or gone wild or run amok. But then we complement that with, you know, what could we do in the future to prevent those sorts of instances? I've been speaking with Michael Kearns and Aaron Roth, the authors of The Ethical Algorithm, The Science of Socially Aware Algorithm Design. We'll talk more after a break. Podcasts of Tech Nation are available on NPR One by entering Tech Nation as one word and on iTunes under Tech Nation Radio, as well as in other podcast syndication outlets. In the second half of our show, we go beyond the ethical algorithm to protecting our data, wherever it may be. We hear from Gary Davis on the state of corporate security breaches. And Tech Nation Health Chief Correspondent Dr. Daniel Kraft tells us about using our own cells to heal our bodies. Stay with us. Listening to Tech Nation, I've been speaking with University of Pennsylvania professors Michael Kearns and Aaron Roth. Their book is The Ethical Algorithm, The Science of Socially Aware Algorithm Design. You write about Lisa Magrin, or is it Lisa Magrin? We're not sure not either. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> but whatever her name is, tell the story. <laughs> uh, yeah, so this was um, part of an investigation that the New York Times did about a year ago. And um, what they started with was a um, data set of, of millions of people's fine-grained location information. And this is surprisingly easy to get. So you might have an app on your phone right now that has some innocuous purpose. Maybe it's a weather app. But the way it's monetized is it's always collecting your data 
and it's selling it to one of these big brokerage companies that that uh, packages up location data and resells it. So um, this data is nominally anonymized, which means that you know it's got your location information, but it's not attached to your name. And a, a commercial user of this data, maybe a hedge fund, for example, would typically only want aggregate information. They wouldn't care about you specifically. They would uh, want to know, for example, what um, customer trends were at a particular chain of stores to see whether that they want to invest or not. But if you think about it a little bit more, even without your name, uh, there's only so much you can hide about who you are if I'm going to include in this data set your every, your every move. And so what the New York Times did is they identified a particular person, Lisa, and the way they did it is they noticed that she was the only person in the whole data set that every day woke up in her hometown 14 miles away from where she worked and commuted every day to her, you know, she was a school teacher, commuted every day to the school in which she worked. And since she was the only person that had that profile, they could figure out, first of all, that this data trail was hers. And once they figured out how to reattach her name to this data trail, they could follow her around to all sorts of other uh, potentially embarrassing places. So they followed her to Weight Watchers. They followed her to her ex-boyfriend's house, where she apparently spent the night. And Ouch. This is... Yeah. <laughs> this, this is... Um, one example of a, a general trend of re-identification, you know, trying to anonymize data by scrubbing away names doesn't work when so many little idiosyncratic things about you are unique to you. Let's talk about that Lyft stock prediction scam. And it could happen with any company, but you happen to use Lyft in the book. So, so here's how the scam works. Suppose that you get an email giving you a, a stock tip. It says Lyft, for example, is going to go up today. And, and lo and behold, you know, it was right, right? Lyft went up today. And then this keeps going on. The next day you get an email making a prediction and it's right. The next day you get another email making a prediction and it's right. And at the end of 10 days, after 10 correct predictions, you get an email that says, look, I've demonstrated to you my skill at, at predicting the movement of stocks. Uh, I'm not going to keep doing this for free, but for a for a modest fee, I will continue giving you these these tips. And and why shouldn't you pay the fee? You, you've seen that I've I've been right every time. And so, at this point, the recipient of the emails might think to themselves, you know, that's actually a pretty good point. It's really unlikely that someone uh, guessing, you know, just guessing what a stock price is going to do is going to get the right answer. 10 days in a row. But what will happen if you, if you foolishly pay the fee to this scammer is you might still continue getting these stock tips, but all of a sudden they're not going to be any better than, than random guessing. And here's how the scam works. On the first day, the scammer didn't just send you an email. He sent a million people an email. And for half of them, he said the stock was going to go up. And for the other half, he said the stock was going to go down. And the key thing here is that no matter what the stock ends up doing, the email he sent to half of those people, to 500,000 people, is guaranteed to be correct. Okay? Now, 
the next day, he doesn't bother sending a second email to the 500,000 people he made an incorrect prediction to. He's already lost their faith. But he's got 500,000 people left that he can... that he can send another email to, and he'll do the same thing. To half of them, he'll predict the stock is going to go up, and to the other half, he'll predict the stock is going to go down. And he can keep doing this, and after, after 10 days, he is guaranteed with certainty to have more than 1,000 people for whom he's made correct predictions 10, day, 10 days in a row. And so the, the way this scam works is that the individual recipients of this email fail to take into account, number one, the scale of what's going on, and number two, the the adaptivity, the fact that it wasn't an accident that they got this request for money at the end, that this happened only because things happened to work out that they were one of the thousand people that were guaranteed to exist who got 10 correct predictions in a row. Wow. A real big data scam. I like it. <laughs> I don't like wouldn't want to be the recipient of it. But, uh, you begin to see that every time we have any of this technology, whether it's the models, the programming, the data, there are opportunities here that have nothing to do with the ethics of what was implemented, but have to do with the use of the technology. Yeah, and I and you know, we, we write about, we, we, we use this example to introduce what are perhaps more serious and maybe even more disturbing topics, in particular, the reproducibility crisis in the sciences, which is a relatively recently discovered phenomenon that's especially rampant in areas like nutrition and food science, for instance. Um, and many of your listeners will, you know, probably be... Um, you know, familiar with, you you know, headlines that say, oh, scientists discover, eat more chocolate, you'll live longer. And then six months later, it's, you know, eat less chocolate. You, you might see articles that say today, drink more red wine, it's good for you. And a year later, drink less red wine, it's bad for you. Each one of these allegedly backed up by good science and statistical methodology. And Similar to the email scam, the problem here is that when you have enough scientists sharing the same massive data sets, all trolling those data sets for interesting findings, and you have a mechanism, as in the email scam, where failures are not reported. So you don't, in the email scam, you didn't know about the 500,000 people that got the wrong prediction on the very first day. You only know you personally only saw correct predictions. So we argue that that one of the main sources of the reproducibility crisis is actually not that scientists are like this email scammer individually, but that collectively the effect can be the same. And if enough scientists, even each one individually practicing good statistical hygiene, but unaware of how many other scientists are also looking at the same data sets or the same experimental paradigms, looking for interesting slash surprising findings, let's say in nutrition, and that furthermore, scientific journals only report the successful interesting findings. You know, you can't, in both our field and in most scientific fields, you kind of can't publish negative findings. If you if you say, <laughs> oh, I tried this experiment and it didn't work, right? You know, you know, green Reject. jelly beans. Reject. Yeah, green, green, you know, my, I spent a year feeding green jelly beans to mice and guess what? It had no effect on their health one way or the other. You know, you can't get that published study, that, that, that study published. And this is like the email scammer that doesn't tell 
you know, the general population about all the failed predictions that were made. And so we, we talk about this at some length. And, and also, again, in, in the spirit of our interests, uh, we don't just point out the problem and complain about it. We suggest preliminary algorithmic solutions um, that, that could help reduce this kind of, of reproducibility crisis. Gentlemen, this is terrific. I, I know you'll have more bad news for me in the future. I mean, good news. <laughs> <laughs> and I hope you'll come back and join me again on Tech Nation. Well, We'd love to. Thanks for, thanks for having us. My guests today are University of Pennsylvania computer and information science professors Michael Kearns and Aaron Roth. Their book is The Ethical Algorithm, The Science of Socially Aware Algorithm Design. It's published by Oxford University Press. I'm Moira Gunn. You're listening to Tech Nation. Building ethical systems which affect the individual is one thing, but there is always the specter of corporate security breaches, intentional hacking of customer databases. And I wondered if corporations were getting any better. Tech Nation regular contributor Gary Davis is the chief consumer security evangelist at McAfee. Well, Gary, welcome back to Tech Nation. I love being here. My favorite thing to do ever. 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 Wow. Well, this will be a short interview. (laughs) (laughs) Well, in those times in which you're not here, you actually do a lot in the cybersecurity area. Now, tell me, we're always hearing about corporate data breaches. Uh, How are we doing this year compared to last? Are we getting better? Like the breaches going down? Yeah, I would love to be the bearer of good news here, but unfortunately, I'm not. Um, (laughs) Uh This year, according to risk-based security, there's been a 54% increase in breaches. We haven't gotten any better. Yeah, yeah not so much. Yeah, we're kind of trending in the wrong direction. Wrong direction here, here yeah. And, and it's, it's, it's sad because every day it feels like there's something being breached. Now, sometimes you know, not all breaches are created equal. If, if you hear in the news about a big, big financial services company, let's say a Capital One, which happened recently, that breach in and of itself largely because of the data that was breached, but also because of the consequences of that data is going to be more impactful than, let's say, some hosting company that has a bunch of small mom-and-pop websites. So Capital One had a big data breach. Yeah, to the tune of about 100 million credit card applications. And what I found interesting about this was the application. So when you go out to fill out a credit card application, you're giving your address, your date of birth, your social security number. There's a lot of information. And other credit. And other credit, yeah, exactly. So other cards. Other cards. You, you, you're kind of putting your financial life story on this application, hoping to get a credit card. And then all of a sudden, that's the data that was exposed. So yet yeah, not all breaches are created equal. And that was just one that, that carried a lot of weight just in the past month or so. Well, give us another couple that happened in the last six months. Uh, One big one that you may or may have not heard about is American first American financial. And they basically, um, they do settlements for insurance providers and they had 800 million records exposed. 800 billion. 800 million. So you're almost a billion. And, and, but it's one of these companies that most people probably never heard of, but again, the type of data they have, 
is information you use for trying to get a house, insurance, things like that. So it's so the data is valuable. Even so, the data is valuable even if you don't know the company's name. Even if you don't, they know the knew it was valuable. Yeah, but but if they knew it was that valuable, one would hope that 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 they had the safeguards to make sure that that it didn't suffer the consequences that it did. And I'm not saying that that they had poor security. I, I honestly don't know, but that that data is out there. They had the, valuable data. Valuable data. The point is, if, if you hear about these. I, I think well, and there's one other that I think that 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 people should be aware of, especially in this first six months. And it was, it was the American Medical Collection Agency, which is basically the the hosting company for some of the big medical diagnostics company, Quest being one, LabCorp being another big one, um, and they had a total of 22 million records compromised. And this had your medical information, you know, your results from different work you had on, on your blood and things like that. And again, all this information when it's synthesized and brought together provides an extremely unique perspective that somebody could use to really target you as an individual and do other types of damage, insurance fraud and things like that. Well, I just, you know, this is all out there. All these, all my data is out there. All these big companies are out there, some of which I've never heard about. What can an individual do to, I don't know, to stay safe, I guess is the best description. There's several things that we should be thinking about. One is is, is is something I don't think most people think about, but they should, and that is be on the lookout for, for being informed that you're a victim here or that your data was breached. And because in most instances, they're required to notify you if your data was compromised. And if you get a, an email or some sort of notice and you know you've done work with these companies before, it's in your best interest to see what happened and see if they're providing some sort of service. In a lot of cases, they'll provide you know, free uh, credit monitoring and things like that so you can help kind of keep track of what's so going on. So in these instances you were giving here, in fact, if you were one of them, they were required to inform you that you were on the list. In most cases. It depends on, on who it was and, and your the proximity to the consumer to that organization. But in most cases, they're required to, to, to notify you if your data was compromised. Got it. And other yeah. things you can do, and and then it all we all have our behaviors and habits, right? You know, I, every day I go in, every day I'm I'm not kidding about this, and I there, I look at my top financial accounts, my bank account, my other investment accounts, and just to see if there's anything odd there. In your fact, credit cards? Do you got all your credit cards? All, all my credit cards. And I just I, I just like, hey, is there anything that I that looks suspicious to me? Every day. Fact, every day I do it, and but it doesn't take that long. You know, you, you log it. You do I do it from my phone? I, I have biometrics, biometrics to get access. I'm in in a matter of seconds. And you can see, okay, here's the last couple of transactions. And, and I can tell you right now, credit card companies have gotten really, really good at detecting fraud, but it's not 100%. About two years ago, I remember, I, I forgot where I was. I actually think I was in Japan. And I got, um, I was looking at my bank account and I saw a transaction for some sort of game in Los Angeles. And A, I wasn't in Los Angeles and B, I'm not a gamer, so that was obviously a fraudulent transaction. Yeah. So I, I notified my bank and they did the right thing. Unfortunately, I was in Japan, so it wasn't easy to get me a replacement credit card. But but it, but they're getting much better. So review your accounts. Take the time. make it Build the muscle memory 
to look at your accounts. You know, your your parents didn't do this. It's not like, well, my dad did it or my mom did it. These, this didn't exist. This is the first time I really thought about, yeah, this should be something you you brush your teeth, you go through your accounts, you go quick, 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 quick. You know, it's, I didn't order anything from Cheapo Flights, which, of course, my credit card company found yeah. a couple of days later. You're ordering a lot of Cheapo Flights. Yeah. <laughs> Literally, that's the traveling. name yeah. of that. What are you doing there yeah. here? And so just a routine daily kind of thing. It's like, well, I got two seconds now. Let me go through this. That's a that's a really valuable this millennium habit yeah. to be in. It, build the muscle memory. If you don't make it a habit, your, your point is very valid. You brush your teeth every day. You, you hopefully take a shower every day. There's, there are things you do on a daily basis. And, and if you do them often enough, they become habit. Yeah. And this should be a habit. This should be something you, you, you you're, you're between brushing your teeth and taking a shower I check my accounts really quick. And 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 I'm not suggesting you go to every possible account ever and, and do a deep diagnostics look. Just skim it. And you should you should be able to tell in a matter of seconds, hey, this something doesn't look right here. That's great. Well, thanks for that advice, Gary. My pleasure. <laughs> you come back. See us anytime. I'll do that. Thanks for having me. Tech Nation regular contributor Gary Davis is the chief consumer security evangelist at McAfee. For Tech Nation Health Chief Correspondent Dr. Daniel Kraft, it isn't just about making new medicines. It's about any technology which can heal, including using your own cells to treat your body, as in iPS cells, induced pluripotent stem cells. Daniel, welcome back to Tech Nation. Great to be back. Now, over the years, since we've been talking about biotech, we've been talking about iPS cells, induced pluripotent stem cells. Let's go back. What do they mean? Because I haven't heard about them for a while. Well, they've only been around since about 2008 when Shin Yamanaka, who's a physician out of Japan, sort of developed the ability to take almost any quote-unquote adult cell, like a white blood cell circulating in your blood or even a skin cell from a little biopsy, and to quote-unquote reprogram that to be the equivalent of almost your own personal embryonic stem cell line. And the embryonic stem cell uh, world has been of quite important debate and biologic importance. Um, but and those come from an eight-day-old embryo, and they have pluripotency, meaning every embryonic stem cell has the potential, pluripotential, to turn into every tissue type of the body, from your neural cells to the tip of your nose to renal cells to blood-forming stem cells. And so that's particularly exciting, but has had some ethical issues about how we source those embryonic stem cells. And those don't come from the actual patient themselves. So for you to use embryonic-derived stem cells, they may not be an immunological match to that individual patient who might be treated. So what's been exciting about iPSCs, induced pluripotent stem cells, is that it's been found we can reprogram these adult cells to act like embryonic stem cells and where they can potentially differentiate into almost any tissue type and that can be used for both research and potentially for therapy. So you could actually take one of my cells and start treating it and then have it develop into a cell in a different part of my body that I need. Right. So we could take a sample of your blood, take out some of the white cells, treat them with several factors, often called the Yamanaka factors, after the Nobel laureate who developed the initial technology, uh, do some special culturing that you know a high school student could do now in the lab, and create the Moira iPS cell line and grow those up at scale and potentially uh, differentiate them into different directions. Let's say we want to make some liver cells or 
precursor cells or neurologic cells or cardiac cells that could be ready in the dish and frozen away should you have a heart attack or stroke or liver issue and under the right conditions could be utilized to in the form of regenerative medicine to treat uh, an issue like you might have a spinal cord injury. And now we're moving, seeing IPS stem cells move into the, that era. You might have a corneal injury. And a study in Japan was just launched uh, here in 2019 to treat corneal injuries or damage. And the first use of induced pluripotent stem cells to treat uh, potentially stroke and spinal cord injury and Parkinson's are underway, mostly out of Japan. So we're moving from the era of rapid discovery of iPS stem cells that can be used in the dish to starting to see them being utilized in specific patients where those cells, not the iPS stem cells themselves, but the cells downstream, which have been differentiated into more mature cells, are being used to treat a clinical issue. Now, let me ask you, in a, in a larger uh, perspective on this, what we're talking about is some of the diseases or conditions or injuries that we sustain can be helped if we can simply reintroduce our own healthy tissues. That in the past you had a scar or a hole or a, or a dead portion of, of tissue. Is that, is that a good way to see it? Right. We have adult stem cells in many of the tissues or most all of them are a body, but they don't often turn on to completely regenerate that tissue. The liver is one of these examples where if you take out a lobe, it'll regenerate. How do we capture that same ability if you've had a heart attack, for example, for your myocardiocytes uh. to grow? Or in the study that's starting in Japan, um, they're starting to treat spinal cord injuries, and it's gone, going through the regulatory steps and has been approved, where they're going to make iPS cells from the patient, develop them into neurons and glial cells in the in the under the cell culture hood, essentially, take them to the next stage, and then inject about two million of those precursor cells per patient into the site of their spinal cord injury about two to four weeks after the acute spinal cord injury. So this may be something most appropriate, you know, pretty soon after that often very traumatic injury, you might lose your ability to walk or move your arms and legs. So again, it's sort of hopefully augmenting our body's ability to heal by reintroducing your own precursor cells derived from your own cells. Now, some people will say, didn't we do that before? Weren't they doing that before? Every time a new organization, lab, university, company, startup, whatever it is, does something like this, I can guarantee you they're doing something different. They got a new angle or a new something on the cells or a new way of delivery or a new way of qualifying the patients. So while it might sound like, oh, we, we've done that before and it failed or we did it before and it doesn't work for, you know, Whatever it is, this is an indicator of science moving on and technology moving on. And sometimes, you know, health and medicine, particularly in the stem cell world, which has had a lot of hype and hope around it, we need to be quite careful. There are fly-by-night snake oil, quote-unquote, stem cell clinics around the world that you can fly to and get, quote-unquote, stem cell therapy. One of the challenges with cell therapy is what actual cell are you using? Is it derived from an embryonic stem cell, from an adult stem cell, from a blood-forming stem cell? Uh, what dose are you using? How are you delivering those cells? Has it gone through a rigorous actual trial to measure outcomes? Some, dis some issues like a stroke, people recover in different ways. Was it actually the cell injection that helped that patient or is it just time and healing? Um, so we need to be quite careful in how we validate these sorts of approaches. Uh, tons of potential, uh, but we need to do it uh, carefully. And, and now we are in the age where both embryonic stem cells, iPS cells are using are being used in trials to look at age-related macular degeneration, Parkinson's disease, uh, uh, and 
everything to burn injuries and beyond. Very exciting, but we need to make sure we do it carefully. So we can make these cells from our own, but if we're going to inject 2 million of them, you're going to do that in the doctor's office? How's that work? Well, and you, again, you don't want to inject in general the most common embryonic stem cell or IPS cell at its base because they are, again, pluripotent. They can turn into any tissue. And there's the issue of uh, something uh, where you'll develop a tumor, uh, a mix of hair and teeth and anything else if you don't put in these more differentiated cells downstream. One example would be uh, pluripotent stem cell from an embryo or IPS cells can turn into blood-forming stem cells. Those are limited to making red cells, white cells, or platelets. That's what we use in my clinical field of bone marrow transplant as a form of stem cell therapy that's been done for 50 years. And we want them to do it. Exactly. But you don't want uh, a stem cell being injected in, say, the back of the eye for macular degeneration to turn into muscle. And there have been issues now where folks have been blinded, uh, gone blind from fly-by-night uh, not ethical stem cell clinics putting quote-unquote stem cells into patients' eyeballs, uh, retinas, and having bad outcomes. So for individuals looking for particular trials, whether utilizing stem cells or beyond, I would always point folks to clinicaltrials.gov, which is a database of all validated ongoing trials pretty much around the planet. And in the stem cell world, the International Society for Stem Cell Research, isscr.org, is a good resource to find uh, more lessons on stem cells 101, as well as clinical trials and endeavors of where the stem cell world is moving. One exciting era where stem cells, including embryonic and induced pluripotent stem cells, are being used is simply as a tool for clinical research. You can take uh, your own stem cells, iPS cells, and make liver cells or cardiac cells in the dish and then study how a particular drug might work for you or a patient with a particular... Without you having to take it. A common not common, but horrible disease, ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease. Um, Now ALS cells have been derived, neurons from ALS patients have been derived from their own, let's say, circulating blood cells into iPS cells into neurons. And in the dish, you can study the biology of ALS, and hopefully that can lead to better prevention or cures. So it's a very broad spectrum of how we use iPS cells, embryonic stem cells, and adult stem cells, um, which is quite promising but needs to be done in a very uh, guided and ethical manner. Well, get get used to it. It's future medicine here, future of our lives. And it, it blends with all these other technologies, the idea of even bioprinting, uh, the idea that we'll be putting in ink essentially from stem cells to potentially you know, 3D print a trachea, which has been done, or a bone if you're missing something after an orthopedic uh, injury. Um, there is uh, several groups working to try and 3D print 3D print complex organs. (laughs) Um, uh, And I think that's an area that may eventually happen. There's certainly a shortage of organs. There are other approaches, even using gene editing like CRISPR to modify pigs, knock in human genes, knock out pig genes, and to utilize humanized uh, pig organs, which even if they're not kosher, if you're on the wait list, you'll take the organ, uh, that are moving into clinical trials in the next few years. Well, Daniel, thank you. Come back and, and, and update us on all this. Will do. Thanks, Mara. Tech Nation Health Chief Correspondent Dr. Daniel Kraft is the founder and chair of Exponential Medicine. More information is available at exponentialmedicine.com. For Tech Nation, I'm Moira Gunn.
Tech Nation and its regular segment, Biotech Nation, are produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Executive producer is Matt Gardner. The director of technical production is Monte Carlos. And audio engineers include Howard Gelman, Seal Muller, and Larry Upton. Our theme music was composed by Ann Nochtrieb-Zessiger and Robert Powell, with title creation provided by NameLab Incorporated of San Francisco. Program information and Internet audio is available on the web at technation.com. TechNation and Biotechnation are productions of TechNation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt.